0: When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in
1: more ways than one. Bob Dylan. I ain't gonna work on Maggie's farm no more. No, I ain't gonna work on Maggie's farm no more. While I wake up in the morning, fold my hands and pray for rain, I got a head full of ideas that are driving me insane. It's a shame the way she makes me scrub the floor. I ain't going to work on Maggie's farm no more. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the Freewheelin' Rob Kelly. And joining me to talk about one of the Dylan classics of all time, Maggie's Farm from 1965's Bring It All Back Home, is fellow Bobcat and the author of the book about man and God and law, the spiritual wisdom of Bob Dylan, Stephen Daniel Arnoff. Hi, Stephen.
0: Hey, great to be here with you.
1: I'm really thrilled to have you here. I really loved your book and we we're going to talk about it, but I'm just I'm very excited to have you on the show finally.
0: It's a pleasure because like they say, long time listener, first time caller. <laughs>
1: <Right>? <laughs> Perfect. So of course, you know, this is your first time on the show. So I got to ask you the standard opening question. How'd you become a fan of Bob?
0: I got to say that my story is probably a bit standard too amongst the millions uh, for one thing. I grew up in Cleveland, so I was a WMMS fan. That's classic rock when it was still, you know, the rock and roll that was on the radio. So it was about Tom Petty and uh, Bruce Springsteen and John Cougar Mellencamp. And I have to admit that I kind of stumbled into Bob Dylan uh, during the Dylan and Dead tour, which was mostly an excuse to do um, all kinds of things in altered states under cover of culture. (laughs) All right. So, um, that's what I did. I didn't quite get what was going on, but I did know that I was part of something historic, even if it was a bit blurry, what was happening. Um, and then my kind of classic entree to Dylan was, was though maybe it was 40 years or 50 years too late. I was a freshman in college and we went to the record store. Um, as a way of avoiding other things that we maybe should have been doing at the time and i stumbled onto free free and was mesmerized i was uh i just couldn't believe what was happening and i uh proceeded to do a little work with the college radio station rated the vinyl and recorded on cassette everything that i could get a hand on uh from the catalog and uh i guess as they say um, all the rest is, uh, Bob or something like that.
1: So you said you got, initially you were getting into him through the Dylan and the dead stuff. So does that mean yeah. you were
0: seeing the live shows? I saw the live shows and I was, um, like I said, you know, I was one of those people. I'm sure a lot of us out there listening right now, same thing. I'd go to see any concert. Of any band I could find when I was a teenager. So basically, as long as there was enough money in the pocket from lo- mowing lawns or delivering papers, <laughs> I would I would spend it on the on the shows. You know, go down to the May Company and buy Ticketmaster tickets with those old computer printouts and uh, see everybody I could. You know, from Kiss to Bob Seger to Joan Jett. It didn't matter. Rat. You know, wh- whoever was lined up. And and honestly. The Dylan and the Dead, it, it was a show to see. Remember, mm-hmm. I saw them at the Akron Rubber Bowl. And, um, <laughs> what a name for, yeah, a, for a haul. <laughs> that's right. A lot of bouncing going on in there, in the great <laughs> rubber bowl. And, um, wow, well, we got incredibly lost on the way home. But that was a whole other <laughs> story. Um, th- th- this did feel like something historic. I mean, if you're paying attention to music, um, you're sort of piecing together how all the different bands and artists are related to each other. And, you know, obviously pre-internet, um, kind of pre-really rich libraries of rock and roll uh, books. And what I knew, I knew from from Spin and Rolling Stone. And I just knew that seeing Dylan and the Dead, besides the fact that it seemed like a great way to spend um, a lost evening, was something that you sort of had to do if you considered yourself a serious fan of music. I didn't know what I was seeing until much later uh, when I really started to track into to Dylan and uh, enter into this world of uh, thinking about, exploring, uh, trying to make sense of all the wonderful music and words that have come out of that universe we call, uh, we call Bob Dylan.
1: Uh I know it was a long time ago and of course it was a it was a Dylan it was a a, a dead show which doesn't lend itself to say, you know, the, the the strongest memory retention in the world, I would say. Uh but uh like can you remember like when you were seeing that show where were the was the Dylan stuff you were like, Oh hey, this is pretty good? Like you know and like that was popping for you or were you more there for the dead and there was, you know, you were like, Oh yeah, that stuff was good, but the dead stuff was, what was great. Or do you remember kind of like, kind of just getting in like, Oh wait, this is oh I like this. I remember
0: that I spent a fair amount of time in the show. There was a guy sitting behind me. I guess it was a couple, but I remember talking to the gentleman. He was a real hippie, um, an older dude, um, long hair, beard, very, um, to my mind you know to my 16 or 17 year old uh mind like the archetypal archetypical hippie and i got into this long conversation with him basically saying you know you guys had the real thing i'm 52 now so this was you know already you know dipping in uh uh to a a previous generation but this was someone who had been you know involved in the music as it actually blossomed in real time And I kept saying to him how envious I was of someone who actually had been tracking that music, tracking that culture when it was taking place, when it was really forming itself, and that this now was a historic event. And that sense of wanting to be in the place where the music, the culture, The sensibility is really taking place as opposed to being a place that sort of is looking back on it, sort of the classic rock point of view, was what I remember from the show. And um, the point of the fellow that I was speaking to was um, you actually just have to be here now in the music. Sounds very hippie, right? Be here now. But he said, don't think about the fact that this is a couple decades in the making. You're here. Uh, get into the music get into the atmosphere and uh, take from it whatever you can mm. that was vivid that memory remains vivid
1: and that's a that's a very dylan-esque kind of approach too i mean right. that's why he's yeah. out there that's why he's out there touring right now it's that everything is all that matters is this show at the moment and we're not going to well worry said. about the previous show tomorrow's show this moment right here this group of people in this hall right now so that's right. right interesting okay let's let's I mean, that that's terrific. So unlike a lot of, you said you had sort of a typical uh, introduction to Dylan, unlike a lot of untypical Dylan uh, fans, you wrote a book. I mean, you wrote a whole <laughs> book about Bob Dylan. Uh, as I said, the title earlier said about man and God and law, the spiritual wisdom of Bob Dylan. I mean, what inspired you to, to write a whole book about about this particular aspect of Dylan's work?
0: Well, it's true that not everybody who has a hankering for Bob Dylan or, or rock and roll uh, writes a book, but there are a heck of a lot of books written about Bob Dylan and some really wonderful ones, I have to say, right? You, you know, you've you your bookshelf is probably sagging a bit and and there's more coming out all the time. And now with the establishment of the Bob Dylan Center, there's a real formal field of studies. You know, Bob Dylan studies is something that we're gonna see continue to grow and blossom in, in the years to come. Um, but for me, in terms of writing about um, about Dylan, uh, I think that the seed was actually planted for me before I had really read any real um, books about rock and roll except for everything written about Jim Morrison in eighth grade, which was you know a rite of passage that all of my friends went through. Um, I saw a quote that Pete Townsend or a, a news article, I guess it was a little bit in in Rolling Stone magazine where at one point Pete Townsend had been made an editor at Faber and Faber. And there was a quote, something about literature and music, high culture, low culture, where he sort of said that, you know, there doesn't have to be a difference between the two. There's something about this music, which stands up to any other kind of cultural or artistic expression that kind of stuck with me. And, and as I, um, was, uh, wandering along in my, uh, career I I did work as a musician for about 10 years um I was um never actually uh called the next Dylan except in my mind on occasional you know glimpses <laughs> into a fake future at three o'clock in the morning you know 10 nanoseconds maybe I was uh I studied uh uh, uh religion and uh went on to get a doctorate in uh Uh, what's called uh, Scriptural Interpretation, Midrash, focusing on uh, the literatures of uh, the 3rd, 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries, which um, is really classic, (laughs) classic (laughs) rock. Um, And uh, I read uh, Griel Marcus's uh, uh, book, once called uh, Invisible Republic. Oh, right. Old Weird America. America. It blew my mind. I am a huge fan of... Griel Marcus. Um, he's been a mentor to me and and very kind to me over the years. We've had some great conversations. I've learned so much. Um, I know for some it's an acquired taste, but uh, for me, the idea that someone could combine cultural studies, Americana, uh, mythology, close listening to texts, and what he does is sort of um, spiraling out all kinds of interesting theories about where Dylan, where rock and roll is in the history of the world. Um, to me, that was just an incredible combination of things. And I uh, began writing and teaching about Dylan. I collected a whole bunch of, of things that I had done over the years. And then um, I I worked in a variety of different areas, but what what it came down to was that um, I didn't think that there had been a book written yet that really placed Dylan as a figure of tremendous spiritual and religious import in the history of the world, Um, that he is a catalyst, he is a crossroads figure, he is somebody who really catalyzed... um, all kinds of movements that that uh, flow through centuries and and there's a signpost and I think on that signpost um, is Bob Dylan the Beatles are nearby there are others Uh, he's not alone but to me uh, it was really when COVID hit and life slowed down and life got strange that I decided I would uh, put the pieces together and write a book and I did And uh, and I and I did feel that it was a book that that needed to be written about some of these key themes, because I do believe that the closer attention we pay to Dylan, the better we will do in how we pay attention to the world and where it needs to go.
1: Wow. All right. Uh, One of the things I liked about your your book is that, of course, if you're just scrolling through Amazon and as you say, there are 10,000 books about Bob Dylan. Uh, probably Lincoln is maybe like the only other person there's more books about or something. Yeah. But um, if you see a book with the subtitle, the spiritual wisdom of Bob Dylan, and, and if that's all you see, uh, because of course that's how a lot of people shop nowadays. They're just looking at titles and covers. You know, your initial thought is, Oh, they're talking about like the born again period. No, it's th- you're talking about the the totality of Bob Dylan's spiritual side from the beginning to today. Not focusing yeah. just on that period, because of course he's been quoting from the Bible and other religious texts throughout his whole career. Uh, he's obviously a deeply spiritual person, maybe not a deeply religious person. I think he even said anymore, he doesn't, his religion is the songs. I think that's a quote from, uh, one sure. of his interviews when he was, um, uh, promoting Time Out of Mind. But, uh, that's, I, I like that you managed to cover in a very relatively brief book again, the kind of totality of it. And, you know, again, of course, the the title is taken from this song, Maggie's Farm. Um, do you feel as though someone who isn't of a religious bent like myself or other people who do, or someone who doesn't know this stuff, uh, chapter and verse, uh, literally, um, do you think they lose something, by not picking up references in his songs to things, because there's been over the course of all the 200 episodes we've done so far that I've had other people on who are more religious than I am. And they're able to spot, Oh, this line is from this part of the new Testament. And that's something I never was able to to glean because again, I don't know this stuff. Do you feel like having that background adds to your appreciation for you personally of his work?
0: See, I'm not an apologist. I'm not interested in being an apologist, which means that I want to sort of promote the viewpoint of any particular religion. Right. I think that um, one of the great tragedies of our time is that people who consider themselves religious um, would seem to think that they have the, have cornered the market on meaning mm. on what it means to be alive, to be part of something greater than oneself. Um, what I try to trace in the book is how over the course of many centuries, the structure of organized religion as a whole became either very, very weak or fundamentalist. And what's interesting to me is how in this huge space where people seek love and purpose and meaningful work and community and all the things that make life rich and meaningful, uh, rock and roll becomes a kind of I don't want to say replacement, but something to really lean into when you lean into what it means to have a meaningful life. I can't imagine my life without the music of Bob Dylan. I'm sure you'll feel the same way. There are <clears> millions <throat> of people who feel that way. I don't think that we could imagine the world existing without the Beatles. There was that great movie recently about sort of the movie, the, the film where the Beatles kind of didn't exist. In oh, the yesterday. Sky, yeah. Right. You remember that? Yeah. So, It's hard to imagine much of anything in the contemporary world without the impact of these great artists. And they are, in terms of the way that they function and create meaning and purpose in the world, as powerful in their way as any religious uh, movement. I am concerned always about how religion and different kinds of control and power work together. I'm interested in Cracking the bond between those two so that there's opportunities for real freedom and for real community and for real engagement, um, people with themselves and each other. And to me, because Dylan is such a um, magician and a joker when it comes to taking everything from pop text to sacred text and everything in between, he actually opens up a pathway for people to experience depth and meaning without necessarily having to be aligned with a particular set of practices or beliefs. So to me, the people who are missing out are people who aren't able to set aside whatever predispositions they have for religion and simply say, I, as a non-believing person, a secular person, an, uh, an atheist, whatever it is, I can take just as much richness and meaning out of life as someone who claims to have a belief system that tells you how it is. This is, to me, the magic of like a rolling stone. When he asks, how does it feel? I think he's asking the same question that Plato asked. I think he's asking the same question that Jesus of Nazareth asked. I think he's asking the same question that seers and visionaries for thousands of years have been asking. What is the good life? How can I be a good person? What does it mean to be who I am? How does it feel?
1: Mm-hmm. It's always been interesting to me that when Dylan has dabbled with, again, especially with the Born Again period, dabbled with straight religion, not spirituality, but religion, because of course one of the the ongoing themes throughout his work is the distrust of power structures, of any power structure, whether it be social, political, government, you know, uh, religious, uh, so, you know, romantic, he's, he's very distrustful of imbalanced power structures. And in a lot of ways, um, Religion is sort of the ultimate power structure you know it's the ultimate sense of like of of you know an authority on high, and yet he obviously feels very comfortable uh quoting stuff from the Bible and other religious texts and incorporating it into his own uh into his own work i mean like it took me i can't tell you how many years uh I had listened to sweetheart like you and heard the line about the, in your father's house there's many mansions. Each one of them got a fireproof. I never knew that was a line from the Bible. It was. I think I learned that like five years ago. <laughs> I was like, yeah. "Oh wow, okay." And I always had my own meaning in my head for what that line meant. And then I'm like, "Oh, okay, that's from this. Okay, does that change how I feel about it? I'm not sure, but it's it's nice to know."
0: Yeah, it's uh, rock and roll. Sunday school comes late, <laughs> I guess. You know, um, the the thing is, is that Dylan makes some really weird choices when it comes to where he aligns himself religiously. So he really does align himself with sort of fundamentalist worldviews, which is strange because he seems to be someone with such a vast imagination and such a, um, he, he's an ain't going to work on Maggie's farm kind of guy, right? Mm -hmm. He will, he will refuse whatever authority structure is um, uh, trying to get hold of him, whatever, whatever, Grasp whatever clasp of society's pliers he wants to bust <laughs> out of it. He wants to break it, right? Mm-hmm. And at the same time, he chooses to uh, align himself with um, what we would think of as being fairly extreme <laughs> ways of seeing how the word and and man and God and law work together. Uh, I think that's one of the strange mysteries of Dylan, because I don't really get into his personal worldview. I don't have access to it. I don't need access to it. I'm interested in the work he creates and what he gives us as a performer, as an artist. As a person, it's interesting. People do want something um, affirmative, something that's uh, fundamental to hang on to sometimes. Maybe Dylan's not so different than all of us besides the fact that he is clearly a creative genius.
1: Yeah, absolutely. said uh, That's a perfect segue to talk about this song, again, which, of course, is where your your title comes from. And by the way, I, I said this on the Like a Rolling Stone episode where I felt like in a lot of ways, how does it feel is it encompasses all of Bob Dylan's songs. I feel like all Bob Dylan's songs yeah. are asking that to a certain extent. How does it feel? He's asking you, how do you feel? Uh, but, man, the, the phrase talks to all the servants uh, about man and God and law. I mean, talk about an economy of language, of being able to incorporate that's kind of everything, man and God yeah. and law. <laughs> it's just one line in this song. Yeah. Amazing. It,
0: yeah, that's that's one of the um, amazing uh, aspects of any great poetry. And it's the same of sacred texts. So those rooms in the father's house, that's a poetic phrase that has so much room in it. It's a house in and of itself, right? It can fit all kinds of furniture and all kinds of people. It's a big set of meanings that can go into that phrase. That's part of what makes sacred text so powerful is that on the one hand, it feels immutable. It feels like something that's stuck in the ground and it's not going to move. On the other hand, it feels like something that you can move into and, you know, kind of bring forward wherever you want to make your meaning. And that's one of the really um, Incredible things I think about Dylan's work is you can take a phrase like the one we just cited right um talks to all the servants about man and god and law and and actually parse it you can take it apart and you can almost find a whole world in there if you've got <laughs> enough time and uh you know liquidity in you right you can <laughs> you can you can really let it let it roll into all different kinds of places and in a lot of ways this whole book is. kind of commentary on that very phrase so what is man what is god and what is law and can we take dylan's canon and sort of examine it in those three directions and ask ourselves what is he teaching what is he explaining about the nature of things the nature of experience the nature of the world and that phrase because it's so rich uh, but so dynamic You can spend a lot of time there. Even 258 pages you can spend there.
1: (laughs) Some people, I mean. Some people, some people. So, yeah. Um, The second verse of the song, uh, he says, I ain't going to work for Maggie's brother no more. No, I ain't going to work for Maggie's brother no more. Uh, Well, he hands you a nickel. He hands you a dime. He asks you with a grin if you're having a good time. Then he finds you every time you slam the door. I ain't going to work for Maggie's brother no more. Uh, part of the appeal of this song, I think a part of the reason it, it resonates so hugely in the Dylan canon and it went on to become, and we'll get into the, you know, how it, how it took a life uh, of its own sure. after, after this particular record. But that uh, part of it is, uh, one of the things I, I enjoy about bringing it back home, I think it's one of Dylan's funniest albums. I mean, sure. aside from the uh, 115th dream and stuff like that, but it's even the more serious songs just have a kind of what the F kind of feeling to them. And, um, uh, he feels like he almost, you can almost hear it in his vocal that he's um, like in, intoxicated with this discovery that he's found, which is, of course, the addition of the electric music. You know, to this sure. point, he'd been doing acoustic and he finally found a way to kind of marry those two visions together, taking his songs and putting them with an electric backing. And this song, you know, also, one of the reasons people relate to it much is who, who can't relate to this because you can transpose this idea to any situation, any situa- i mean who hasn't felt this way about their boss sometimes
0: Sure. and
1: the way that uh you know the the guy hands you a nickel, hands you a dime, and asks you with a grin if you're having a good time it reminds you of all those bosses that are like, you know how are, are you having a good day today? Well no because I'm here aren't I, <laughs> like, I yeah that's right. <laughs> course not <laughs> i'm you know, here because it, i don't i'm here so i don't starve to death that's that's why but, i'm here it's not right good time. but you
0: can't say it you can't, you can't say, say, say it, that right but you can say it in code right <laughs> so one of the things that's amazing about folk music and we see this particularly relating to how folk music sort of challenges societal norms folk music is a code for um telling a different story about what's happening above the surface. It sort of gets under the hood. And that's something that real Marcus talks a lot about, right? In Republic, basically he's saying that Dylan and the band, you know, led by Dylan as the songwriter, as the visionary are creating this secret history of America. Uh, They're not talking about the Vietnam war, but they actually are by not talking about it through bringing together all these different mythical uh, stories and, and characters and figures. And what's happening in Maggie's farm to me, as I was thinking about it today, I was comparing it in my mind to uh, Highway 61 Revisited. And if you take that also, I don't know if it's five verses or six, but each verse sort of has a theme, right? So you've got um, in each uh, e- in each verse, there's a theme that's taken on. So in, in Maggie's farm, for example, Right, the hands. It starts with the work, right? He's 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 putting his hands together and praying for rain because he doesn't want to work, right? He does not want to get out there and work. He's trying to use his head instead of his hands. And they want him to scrub the floor, right? He's saying, I don't want to scrub the floor. I've got better things to do than menial labor. The second verse, it, it's about money, right? He's getting he's getting screwed by the boss, right? The man is um, actually um, he's nickel and diming him, right? He's he's literally keeping him on a leash with the minimum wage in order to control him. Uh, the third verse, you get the violence that sort of reminds me of the uh, the bleacher scene of <laughs> Highway sixty one revisited, where you know the world, the promoter is going to launch a world war, and it's this same kind of manipulation of violence. The fourth verse, um, looking more at themes of religion and slavery and uh, how the good word is used against people. And the last one, you know, where he ends a lot of his songs, he ends his songs uh, alone. Uh, they are um, telling him what to do and he's just trying to be who he is. So Dylan has this uh, ability to take chaos, right? put it into categories, put it into verses and tie them up with these catchphrases. Like I ain't going to work on Maggie's farm no more. I ain't going to work for Maggie's mom no more. Right. And it brings together something that you can actually sink your teeth into and really relate to because like you said, who hasn't had the experience of being in the wrong place, working for the wrong person, for the wrong money at the wrong time. And you look out the window and the world looks wrong too. And he gives you this almost like a, uh, I don't know if you'd, you'd call it a recipe or a breakdown of all the things that aren't working in the world, but it ends with this kind of statement of individuality. And he is going to be told to sing while he slaves, but he just gets bored. Because even the song is too much of a structure to hold him. He's free. <laughs> he frees himself.
1: Uh, in, your, in your mind, uh, over the time you've been listening to this song, the, the idea, of, I mean, of course, uh, you know, one of the antecedents of the song is supposedly Down on Penny's Farm, which sure. has a similar uh, kind of structure. And even, it's funny, the couple of the opening lines to Down on Penny's Farm, Bob himself took for another song. Which was Hard Times in New York Town, which is, I'm going to, really? I have a song, I'm going to sing it to your right until you might think it's wrong, which again, he's, he's just borrowing, he's just pilfering from all sorts of things and patching them together. But the idea of that you're on Maggie's farm and you're working for Maggie's relatives, the pa, the brother, you know, it's it's all, it's a family farm, you know, quote, quote unquote, family farm. Uh, in In your mind, again, if you've ever kind of gone down this road, do you feel like, That's a commentary on the idea that the structure that people find themselves forced into, and you could, again, you can decide whatever that structure is in your mind, whether it's capitalism or religion or anything else, or some people have suggested it's the music business, you know, coming closer to home for, for Bob. But the idea that like, obviously all of these people that uh, this poor guy has to work for, and he mentions the pa who puts out his cigar out in his face just for kicks and his bedroom window is made out of bricks. The National Guard stands around the door, which again we can talk about that in a moment. But the idea that it's like why you know initially when I, I think I first heard the song I was like, well, why is it the relative? Why 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 is the farm run by Maggie's relatives? Is that because you get the sense that none of these people earn their position? It's it's all uh, you know just getting a job through nepotism. And so, well, first of
0: all, he came for Maggie, right? I mean, he's down on the farm because he's looking for Maggie, isn't he? I mean, he fell in love. Isn't that what brought him to the farm? I mean, I wonder, what do you think?
1: Really? I've never thought about that. Really? You think that that's, I've I've never, that part has never occurred to me.
0: Well, to me, there's got to be a motivation. And I think of the farmer's daughter, right? Hmm. One of the things that is really interesting about Dylan is sometimes, as it works in folk music, it's almost like the explanation of a kind of, an aphorism or a cliche or an old saying, right? So, or or something that's sort of known, this image of the farmer's daughter. He's the guy, he's on his own, he's wandering, he falls in love with the farmer's daughter, he comes to the farm and the farmer's daughter is either gonna enslave him or kill him, right? Because he's not giving away his daughter. He doesn't like this scraggly dude who's gonna show up on the farm singing music, right? And not wanting to work. This is not gonna go over well with dad and it's certainly not gonna go over well with Maggie's Ma, who seems to wear the pants in the family, as it were. So that's one piece of it. Another piece of it is that the, the family farm, right, that was the primary industry of America in the 19th century, up until the you know, peak of when the Industrial Revolution sort of shifted. But well into the 20th century, agriculture was the primary um, uh, capitalist venture, right, of, of America. And it was family farms, which, of course, barely exist these days because of the nature of technology and the economy and globalization, et cetera, et cetera. So there's something about the family, right, that's supposed to be a protection. There's something about falling in love with the farmer's daughter that's supposed to bring you happiness, wealth, employment, joy, not boredom mistrust, abuse, and all the other terrible things that happened to this song. So I think it is about this idea that something about society itself is perverse, it's off, it's unaligned, and um, to that extent, he really wants to kick back in the face of the thing that was supposed to save him, right? You didn't go to the farm because you wanted to suffer, you went to the farm because you wanted. Maggie, because you wanted work, because you wanted food, all the things that a family all the things that a farm was supposed to produce um, that's 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 two <laughs> items in the in the explanation uh, explanation game and and uh, a third is um something that I talk a little bit about in the book, and it is about how this idea of culture. And agriculture, right? Agriculture, culture, cultivation. This idea that the farm is a place where things are supposed to grow. And um, sorry for the uh the acculturation of the siren in the background there. <laughs> um <laughs> someone's up to no good outside on the farm. What can I say? <laughs> um the the idea that the farm is supposed to sustain us, like culture is supposed to sustain us, there's poison in the ground here. And that is the painful part of this song is that there is no peace for the person who came to the farm, we would think, for altruistic, uh, benevolent, uh, loving reasons. And what he winds up with is a complete mess.
1: Huh. I love that you wrote a whole uh, prequel for Maggie's Farm <laughs> before the song even starts. Uh, That'll be for
0: the movie version. That'll yeah. be the Brownsville girl. Uh, yeah. Brownsville girl will be the. The closer.
1: <laughs> uh, that's really, I said that that part of it has never crossed my mind. That's really interesting that uh, that he's, he came here for the right reasons and then finds himself ensnared and kind of can't get out. And, of course, I mean, a lot of people literally did get ensnared on farming. Like they were, you know, the, the whole idea of the almost indentured servitude or the company store, uh, which Dylan himself, when he sings uh, Diamond Joe on, on Good As I've Been To You, that's somebody who's working for a a kind of a corrupt landowner and he can't possibly get away because he's not paid enough to ever get away. A very grapes of wrath kind of, uh, kind of idea there. So that, again, that's, that's really interesting. So that's the story
0: of Penny's farm too, right? It mm -hmm. is about hard scrabble farmers, tenement farmers who do, do, to do not have the ability to escape the debt of, uh, of the powerful family that owns their family. So, There's that, and there's never going to be a Dylan song, as he said in Chronicles, right? That he says that everything he has written has been informed by the Civil War, by race, and you can never go far away from slavery. When he says, sing while you slave, but I just get bored, you know, this is an area where Dylan has huge conflict. Uh, Think of Blind Willie McTell. think of how he wrestles with what it means to be a white singer singing um, in in tropes that um, you know emerge in a lot of ways from from black culture and music and the theme of slavery here just think about how many uh, people the millions and millions and endless millions of people who were literally enslaved by family farms that's never far from dylan's singing never the story is slavery so you know that's in there too which makes this goofy kind of song with this funny kind of riff,
1: like pretty heavy at the same time. Yeah. It's wildly entertaining, you know? Yes, exactly. I said, it's the vocal performance is so funny. And yet you said, there's all of this meaning that you, if you want to see it, is layered into it. So the, the, the verse I was talking about with the Maggie's paw, where he says, uh, his bedroom window is made out of bricks. The National Guard stands around his door. Now, that I was always like, what, you know, what exactly does that mean, at least in my head? And I, I always took it as, um, well, whose bedroom window would be surrounded by the National Guard? Well, I thought, well, I'm thinking, you know, when did Bob write this? He wrote this in late 64, probably, very early 65. Uh, this was, by the way, this, this song was basically recorded one time for the bringing it all back home sessions. It seems like he got it kind of in one take and that's the one you hear on the record. There weren't uh, numerous alternate takes of it, but I, my mind always goes to Lyndon Johnson and the protests that were going on uh, during the Vietnam war, where you literally had to have the national guard surrounding the white house because people were protesting the war. And uh, you know, I mean that that's Lyndon Johnson's bedroom is the white sure. house and it's surrounded right. by the national nice. guard now yeah. uh, i mean the vietnam war was not ramping up in the public's eye that early that that, that was going that you that, that stuff was in 67 68 stuff like that but as we know bob can be very prescient and he can be sure. imagining something that isn't literally happening but it's sort of in the ether and he's sort of plucking it and putting in songs mm. and in my mind that's it that verse at least is what i imagine is a president who is besieged by protesters for whatever reason. And that's why it's the bedroom window is made out of bricks. It's incredibly secure.
0: Yeah. The president is also sort of any man with power because the cigar is a signifier for power. Freud said, right. Sometimes a cigar is just (laughs) a cigar. No, it's not. Come on, Freud. Mm -hmm. This cigar signifies, you know, male power. When you put your cigar out in someone's face, just for kicks, you are just a cruel, evil person, right? Who does that? only someone who's trying to show that they are not only better, but that they can really basically control the life of someone else. His bedroom window though, that's where the action is, right? The bedroom is the place where things are supposed to go down. He doesn't want anybody to see into what's go- actually going on there. What is actually going on in that bedroom? And, and he can't see out into the world either. So he's completely closed in. Uh, and 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 all of that perversion, all of that violence, all of that, um, manipulation of power right is happening protected by the establishment um and all of that and with all of that it's clear that it's actually maggie's ma who's in charge right, right. i mean right. it's maggie's farm it's maggie's ma right um though i guess maggie inherits the farm farm <laughs> from everybody because it is maggie's farm uh maggie turns out to be really bad news too because maybe maggie's, is 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 the is the one who's gonna continue on this this really backwards awful tradition bricked up windows and paying a slave's wage and not allowing people to leave that's gonna be the the legacy that uh dylan and his and his friend maggie are gonna inherit he just will not have it uh <laughs> it's like yeah. What's the ultimate family home? Like what's the American, like, isn't the White House like the people's house, we say? Mm-hmm. So that's really a good one. You're drawing out there that, you know, if, if is this the president who uh, maybe everyone must, uh, even the president of the United States must stand naked? Maybe that's why the bricks are in the window so no one can see.
1: Mm hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, again, I love the, again, the, the, the vocal of this is just get The way he tries to Ma, like he makes it sound yeah. very kind of a heart, extra harsh, nasally sound. Uh, yeah. so he goes on and he's talking to, he's not going to work for Maggie's ma. She talks to all the servants. There it is about man and God and law. Everybody says she's the brains behind boss. She's 68, but she says she's 24 and he seems to, uh, every so on, he changes that age. I noticed, <laughs> depending on the live performance, they'll say right. 44, 60. Sometimes she says, I've heard him sing, uh, she's 68, but she says she's 64, which seems kind sure. of like a nebulous difference to tell someone you're only four years younger than you are. 68. Or the Beatles,
0: right? Or when I'm Right, there you go. Right?
1: Yeah, there you go. But she's 68, but she says she's 24. That I always love that particular line because it's, in my mind, it's a lie that someone, because obviously no one who is 68 is going to be, can pass for twenty four. That's impossible. Uh, I, mean, I don't know. Maybe uh, Paul Rudd or something. But generally, that's not. It's not going to happen. Someone who tells you a lie of that magnitude is insulting you. Like kind of you talk about with the cigar. Someone who tells you a lie of that magnitude is insulting you to your face because you know they're lying, and they know that you know that they're lying, but they're saying it anyway. Yeah, and that's the news. ultimate. Yeah, it's the yeah. ultimate slap in the face kind of saying, I'm going to tell you this whopper and you're going to sit there and take it because I know you have to.
0: Yeah, well, not to get political, but we know that a certain uh, president who even he must have had to stand naked invented the phrase fake news. Right. Uh, well, I'm going to tell you what the facts are. Um, you can't be 68. There's no way you can't be 24. What, what are you? I'm 24. I'm mm-hmm. 24, but it's impossible. It says right here on your birth certificate that you're 68. No, no, no. I'm nope. 24. Now sit mm-hmm. down while I put the cigar out in your face. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dylan might've been 24 when he wrote this line too, which is interesting, right? He was born in yeah. 1941. Um, you know, So there's a little bit of a reflection maybe on on his own sense of the, and, and 68 at that time it was not 68 today. Uh, 68 was, You know, that was past retirement age. Uh, I don't know what the average age of of people, but I'm sure many, many people, you know, 68 would be considered really up there. So it's sort of like the really old person and uh, who's trying to pretend that they're sexy and young and fresh and interesting, which, you know, Dylan definitely was at that time. Uh, is is basically, s- despite all of their power and the fact that they control the farm and everybody on it, they just want to be young, right? Mm. And Dylan said that you know he uh, he 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 preached uh, uh, as one of many, right? This was the age of of don't trust anybody under the age uh, over the age of thirty. So you know one thing that you can't buy is youth. You just can't. You can lie about it, but you can't buy it.
1: Uh, yeah. And then the, the section about that about, talks to all the servants about man and God and law, which, again, is is rich because you've got someone who is talking about all these big ideas uh, to the servants. And it's sort of like, well, you know, yeah, you have time for it's like that. The um, what's that the hierarchy of needs thing where, mm. you know, one, once your basic needs are met, then you have time to start worrying about. Uh, you know, quality and morality and all these other high-minded ideas, but when you're just scratching to survive, you don't have time for that. So these poor people, talks to all the servants. These are people that are literal servants, but all these high-minded ideas, and it's like the servant's like, get the hell, you You know, and they have to sit here and listen to these lectures by Maggie's ma, because Maggie's ma got nothing else better to do, and she can sort of sell, oh, I'm talking about those high-minded stuff, and it's like, well, then you know what, pay me more, so I'm not a servant anymore if you're really that into all these high minded ideas, and it's somebody just prattling on about a bunch of nonsense that really doesn't mean anything to someone who is barely getting by,
0: yeah, she's full of it, and all she really cares about is how she looks anyways, right? Yep. she just wants to look twenty four she doesn't really care about she doesn't really care about all of this this business about man and God and law, and anyways, she was preempted in the first verse where he put his hands together and prayed for rain when he prayed he prayed for rain. That's actually useful on the farm, right? I (laughs) mean, we could use some rain around here. Rain is going to help the crops grow. (laughs) In every culture, rain is a sign of God's mercy. It means that you're going to have to do less work because things are going to grow without you getting out there and having to, you know, hew and sow and do all the different things that you you would need to do. Obviously, you got to keep the farm up, but it's sure without water, there's nothing. And she just yapping on about man and God and law, like you said. But in the end, she's checking herself out in the mirror. She's saying, D- "Do I do I look twenty forty? How do how am I looking? Right? So she's full of it. She's full of herself. She's full of herself.
1: It's marvelous. Yeah. Uh, so, so then the the final verse, he says, "Well, I try my best to be just like I am." But everybody everybody wants you to be just like them. They say sing while you slave, and I just get bored. Now the line about singing while you slave, I mean we can see why a lot of people uh, were taking this almost literally and saying that Dylan was this is him casting off, you know, the folk crowd and being like, you know, no, 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 I'm not going to just be your, I'm not your property. I'm going to go off and do my own thing. But I mean, to me, the 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 line. They say sing while well, you slave, and I just get bored. I mean, to me, that represents every job virtually anybody's ever had. You know, I sure. mean, it's it's it, it. Again, it always not to get too, you know, too deep into the weeds on this stuff, but it does remind me of a lot of bosses I've had or a lot of jobs I've had where they ask you questions about, you know, like where where you again, like you want to say, why, why do you think I'm here? I'm here so I don't starve to death. I'm not here because this is a calling. You know I'm not he a... wants
0: you down in the waves in the weeds, right so you know come down to the ditch that he's in right that's <laughs> that's uh that's uh it's all right ma he he wants you in the weeds he he wants you thinking about that mm-hmm. you should be thinking mm-hmm. about your boss and your boss should be thinking about the reason that he's a boss, and your boss should be thinking about his boss, and everybody should be thinking, does it make sense there's even a boss around here at all
1: yeah, yeah, I just and this single slave, and I just get bored I again the word bored. Uh, is to me so powerful. It's like, you could say, I get mad, I get this or whatever. I mean, of course he's doing for the rhyme racing board and more, but the, the word bored is to me so powerful because it's like, yeah, a lot of the work that we do is just boring. I mean, just, just absolutely mind cripplingly boring. And the idea that as someone is someone to say, sing while you're doing this. And then to almost get upset when you don't, it's like, look, isn't it, isn't it enough that I do the job? Like, isn't it? That's not enough. I got to sing on top of it. I got to pretend that I'm happy. Why do you care whether I'm happy or not? I'm doing it. So what difference does it make?
0: Yeah. You're entertaining the master, right? right? I mean, this is, this is classic. um, This is classic, right? Whether it was slaves who would sing or uh, on the chain gang where they would Mm -hmm. sing or working on the railroad where they would sing, partly to keep the rhythm and pass the time and keep structure and le- have a sense of doing something of, of some kind of, you know, uh, purpose beyond the the drudgery. Um, but, but I have to say like this verse, this is, this is one of the great rock and roll verses of all time. I think, um, you know, it is such A rebel with a cause, right? (laughs) Uh, I I, I mean, I I think a lot about the wild one and Marlon Brando. And he's asked when he goes into the bar by uh, uh, one of the two women that he meets in there with his pal, you know, hey, Johnny, what are you rebelling against? And he says, what do you got? Mm -hmm. Right. Dylan is listing what he's rebelling against. Well, everything, but he's very specific about it. This is not a random, I'm just a teenage rebel. This is a thoughtful guy who in the first verse is putting together his hands and praying, and then breaking down all of the different pieces of society represented by this farm that don't make sense. So he says, you know, I'm just not going to do it. I mean, this is, you know, we're not going to take it. D. Snyder would be proud. This is a good old <laughs> Twisted sister precursor here, right? Proudly so. And then he says, you know, I mean, I just think this is a beautiful line. I, I just It's so simple, but to me, it's one of the greatest lines in rock and roll history. Well, I try my best to be just like I am, but everybody wants you to be just like them. Now, look, it is, first of all, um, who has not felt this way? right? Mm-hmm. Who has not felt like someone's, they're trying to change me, right? They won't let me be who I am. Why don't you just let me be who I am? Let me be who I want to be. I don't know if there's a person on this earth, right? Who hasn't at some point felt that feeling. And this just it in a language that anybody could say and anybody can understand. Second thing though, is that he says, I try my best, which already is like, I'm on this guy's side. I don't want to be on the side who's putting out cigars in people's faces or <laughs> lying about her age. I want to be on the guy's side who's trying his best, right? He's the guy who's actually trying to be his best. He's he's not a jerk. He's just like me. He's trying to be as good as he can be, and he's trying to be just like I am, which is, to me, he's trying to become the person he's supposed to be. I want to be just like I am. In other words, there's still some distance between who I feel like I am and who I'm supposed to be. And while I'm trying to do this, and he's 23, he's 24 years old, he's changing the course of popular music. People are upset with him because his genius continues to blossom, right? And everybody wants you to be just like them. Well, who are you, right? He turns it back on the listener or the uh, audience or uh, the others who may be in the orbit of this song and and he's basically saying, I'm trying my best to be who I'm su- supposed to be. What instead of you telling me who I'm supposed to be, you go be who you're supposed to be, right? And leave me alone. And then one of the great, I think, um, instinctual, intuitive geniuses of Dylan is that somehow at the end of these songs, and he does this in Blind Willie McTell, and he does this in Brownsville Girl, and he does this in Murder Most Fall, he does this in uh, Desolation Row, he does this time and time again. He disappears at the end of the song. Okay. They say, sing while you slave, and I just get bored. I ain't going to work on Maggie's farm no more. To me, that's the mic drop, right? Because he's saying, you know what? And if you agree with everything I said so far, everything I said so far, and I'm the rocking, folking, you know, rebel, prophet, whatever that you want, and you want to be like me, no, 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 no. I'm just singing while I slave, I'm just, I'm bored, right? It doesn't really mean anything at all. So don't take me too seriously. Don't take yourselves too seriously. Just get on with it and uh, and drop the mic or drop the hoe huh or drop the shovel or drop whatever it is and walk away from whatever BS is keeping you down. That is rock and roll. That is rock and roll. And And to me, it's like, you know, if, if there was a rock and roll Sunday school or a rock and roll civics course, like they would teach this song to every kid to teach the kid uh, 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 the right amount of rebellion, but also the right amount of rebellion. Because everybody at the end of the day has to be aware that they're not becoming the same jerk, right? <laughs> That's trying to be their boss. And that to me is just beautiful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, very well. So it's funny when you're, talking there. it reminds me of that onion article where it said the uh, study suggests workers benefit from occasionally getting up from their desk walking away and never coming back <laughs> like, yeah that's about right um yeah. i mean so the the you know the kind of er text of this song really became text in its first ever live performance which was of course at the Newport Folk Festival in 1965, sure. which right. caused all sorts of problems. And we don't need to get into the history of that particular event. I remember right. it makes me, uh, I think, I forget who was who told me this, but somebody somebody brought up, somebody was interviewing Bob and brought up the Newport Folk Festival. And he was like, oh, the Newport Folk Festival, how interesting. You know, like he, he's yeah. just tired of talking about it. But of course you know and there's all these arguments about well it wasn't really that it was electric music it was that nobody could hear it and yada 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 but there's just something so perfect that bob was singing this song and this was the first song it was, it's its live debut was at the Newport Folk Festival it's the first song in the set and it was the beginning of the booze and all of this you know th- th- talk about setting uh, setting the song kind of in like stone and making it well yeah this is what the guy's talking about right here this is it in front of supposedly right. a the most friendly crowd imaginable and here's the reaction
0: yeah he he has just got an innate allergy to doing what people want him to do yep. uh in every aspect you know and um it's uh it's just a lesson to be learned I don't know that you can actually live that way if you're not Bob Dylan. I don't think that you can just drop the mic and uh leave your desk and walk away every day at work. Or you have to have a lot of jobs. It's about 300, or oh, 300 or so jobs a year yeah. you'd have to have and a and a really interesting resume. Y- 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 unless you're this kind of genius uh, you know, who can make your own way on virtue of the fact of you're putting your hands together and coming up with great lyrics and uh and uh music. You know, you're know you going to have to find a way to navigate the world. But it's sort of like an extreme example of the kind of value system that people should be inoculated with, which is that you, you have to ask questions. You have to push back. You can't do what people tell you to do. You have to test it. You have to make sense of it. And you have to be who you're supposed to be. Um, he's a guy who just seems to be magnetically drawn to taking the Uh, unusual stance that winds up being the place where everybody else ends up. Uh, You you just see it time and time again with how he um, is able to anticipate and intuit uh, where people are going to land. And it's often hard to know how much of it is people following Dylan Dylan and trying to be like him and how much of it is Dylan just having this innate sense of sort of what the trend lines are and what's coming. But, um, you know, that performance at the end of the day with all of the social import and all the mythologies and all the theories that have been layered on it, it's just a guy from Hibbing, Minnesota who wanted to be Little Richard and finally had enough under his, you know, feet as a performer that he could put together a band and get up there and play. He wanted to rock, you know, he had always wanted to rock. And this was the way he did it, but because it's Dylan and because of the song lyrics and because of the nature of the scene, it became a um, a kind of crossroads for where popular pol- culture was going to put its heft, not in the folk movement that he was, you know, the king of, but in rock and roll and, uh you know. The Beatles had already done it. The Stones were already happening. It was, you know, James Brown was already three years after James, you know, live at the Apollo. But but Dylan, as we look back on it, was really um, one of the permitters of rock and roll becoming the place where the important things were going to happen.
1: Mm. It's kind of funny when you're talking about, yeah, that Dylan has, of course, is in a unique position because of his genius and because of luck and timing and lots of things. He himself can in some ways be Maggie's ma where he's going on about man and God and law, all these heady things. While the rest Mm -hmm. of us are kind of toiling away. Now, we're not toiling away for him. So it's a different context. But sometimes I do think about the stuff that uh, I spend my money on occasionally. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I, you know, if I spend, uh, you know, I don't remember what it costs nowadays, you know, 50 bucks practically to go see a movie or something. And it's right. terrible. You know, it's, ter- yeah. it's just terrible. It's not even, not even interestingly bad. It's just a waste of time. And I say to myself, <laughs> how many hours of labor did I have to toil to pay for that movie? And that, was that a good use of my labor? You know, that kind of thing. Like how much toil did I have to do to go see, this cruddy movie you know what I mean? that kind of thing so it's like bob is the bob's you know i think about this sometimes i'm like we're well, bob dylan uh, and you know again we don't i don't like to get into his personal life too much on the show that's not what the show's about mm-hmm. It's about the work but i also think about the fact that bob dylan the guy himself has probably quite literally never had a job right never
0: yeah never he's always working you know he's always and working I, but he's, I, I was yeah I, just, I, I was just down in uh, at the Frost Museum in Florida to see the exhibition of his uh, art. Have you seen it? Have you been able no. to get down there? No, I have not. So, uh, I mean, I, I had some work commitments, and I was able to to spend an afternoon there. And uh, it's pretty astounding. I'm not um, too adept at, at commenting on studio arts. Uh, I may, hopefully, <laughs> a little bit on music, uh, hence the book but uh when it comes to the to the art the thing that i took away with from it is that this guy works i mean so much work particularly f- over the past few years i mean it's incredible the amount of sculpture paintings writing he's just you know announced this book that's going to come out in <laughs> november amazing. i we're mean gonna, he's working on a book for 10 years <laughs> he's always working he's always working you know and um he works because he has to work. He tours because he feels he has to tour. And you're right. Like, in a sense, he's, he's not worked a, a day job in the way, you know, most of us work day jobs really ever. Um, but he is working all the time, which is pretty awesome.
1: Oh, ab- absolutely! He, the the, 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 Yes, I mean, he is a creative workhorse at 80 years old. Amazing! Uh, he's touring and doing albums, and again, as we just learned, he's writing books. <laughs> he's writing entire tomes on songwriting. But I just, I think about that sometimes. I'm like, what? A different life experience someone has who has been able to say they've never had a job in their life. They've never, ever. Had a job now, again, Bob might say, well, I have uh, my bosses at Columbia records and, and, you know, stuff like that. And, and we like to think that, geez, once you get to a certain plateau, don't you, aren't you even freed from that? Well, apparently not, you know, apparently not the pressures can be even someone as commercially sort of contrary as Bob. There are still those pressures on you, but I always just think about what, what your worldview might be like if you've never had a job ever, ever had a job that's just to me it's just such a it's so removed from anything i'm familiar with that i i admire it i mean again i'm just that's awesome you can go through life never having to do it and i you know i truly do believe in some far off future unless we don't uh, blow ourselves up uh in some way which we you know we might do that eventually we'll get past all this and we won't have to do this anymore and there will be people to whom the idea of toiling away for 40 years at a job you don't really want to simply pay the bills is is gonna seem just completely alien to them. They're like, what? Why would you why would those people why'd they do that? You know what I mean? But just the idea again that Bob's just never had to check with anybody.
0: You know, yeah, but <laughs> He's you know, never you you know as as a great poet once said, everything went from bad to worst. Worse. <laughs> Money never changed a thing. <laughs> Death kept following us, tracking us down. At least I heard your Bloomberg saying, right? So, you know, it doesn't matter how much money you make uh, at a certain point. If you're in the zone, right, it's about the work. And I yep. think it's holy work. I think it's, I think it's work of the spheres. I think it's, it's work at the highest level. But the thing about Dylan's resonance and, and, and the way we connect with him is that it does not feel far away at all. Time and time again, also back to how does it feel, he is powerful because he describes how he feels, and he does it so well that it reminds you of how you feel. It helps you feel how you feel, right? Yeah. Uh, I I I am you know going to be doing a thing on my my podcast, uh, which we'd love to have you on sometime check it out at mangodlaw.com um, where I'm doing a Dylan and Springsteen, Dylan and Joni Mitchell Dylan and Leonard Cohen, sort of looking at kind of like the mythological figures that people sometimes compare Dylan to. And the thing about Springsteen, he's very funny. He's like, here I was this guy writing born to run, Talking about uh, cars, and he's like, "I didn't even have a driver's license, man. I didn't (laughs) even know how to drive, you know." He's like, "And here I was talking about working in the factory and the lunch pail, and the and the the bell goes off. I never worked a day in my life. I've just been playing in band since I was sixteen years old, you know." (laughs) So it's like the ability to imagine things so incredibly um, uh, deeply and with such color is something that Dylan and uh, and Springsteen share, and I think all great artists share uh, sometimes most times they have to kind of be down in the <laughs> down in the ditch where you know where we we are where where people work, where people are uh, responsible, where people feel overwhelmed or or uh, have challenges that that uh, that they have to face, uh, just on the basic you know subsistence day to day level, you know m- many great artists have been there. Uh, certain artists have the ability just to capture the human experience and i think with dylan that's one of the things that's that's a bit magic about him is that here's this guy you know who is um i don't know 15 homes and uh <laughs> you know he can do anything he wants to in the world and his choice is to sit on a bus you know 10 <laughs> hours a day driving from venue to venue and sitting in a hotel room and then doing some painting and drawing, doing a show and getting on the bus again. Mm -hmm. That's just like, it's like, he's like a monk, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like, uh, it's, it's completely a calling. I think that's incredibly inspiring particularly for those of us who kind of have to find purpose in the drudgery. He's like, he could do anything he wants. He prefers drudgery because he wants to work.
1: Yeah. His mobile farm you know i mean yeah, right, farm right. every <laughs> right. it moves it from town <laughs> with down two to motorcycles down. in the back right yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> uh now this song was released as a single it was the second single from uh bringing it all back home it wasn't a particular hit but by the fact that it shows up on bob dylan's greatest hits volume 2 uh to me suggests that uh the enormity of the song the fact that it got covered Uh, you know, it's been covered a lot by a lot of different people over the decades, Suggest that, yes, okay, Columbia knew that this was kind of one of his biggest songs, even though the song itself was not, uh, like I said, like a huge single Mm -hmm. in any way. Um, It's appeared on virtually every live album that he's put out. It was on, there's a really fun version on Hard Rain where he really stretches it out, and then he, like, speeds it up and then slows it down and speeds it up again, (laughs) and you know, and they're clearly having a lot of fun, you know, and he's doing the... And at one point you hear him yeah. go, all right, they're <laughs> like, yeah. so having a lot of fun singing it. Yeah. Uh, it's on the Ad Budikin record. It's on the real live yeah. record. Um, it's on the Dylan 2007 sort of best of collection. The live. There's a live version that appears on the bootleg series, the Another Self-Portrait, because he did it at the Isle of, the Isle of White. Um, it was, of course, appropriated by a lot of British musicians in the 80s uh, mm-hmm. During the uh, beginning of the, you know, Margaret Thatcher's uh, move, uh, government taking over the British government then. And it's, you know, Bob Dylan songs are like the weather. You just wait long enough and they'll become, right. you know, relevant to some other moment that, that's going on. Because, I mean, it's just, can you imagine being an, you know, being an angry Brit and wanting to, you know, just get mad about Margaret Thatcher and her mad reign And there's the song right there. I ain't going to work on Maggie's Farm. it's That's right there. The light, you know, it's sitting there right for you. And so this thing is, it has been covered just a ton of times. It's been on, it's been used in movies and all sorts of things. There's a thing, the Beastie Boys sampled it um, in one of their songs. I mean, the thing just went on and on and on. And it's really just become part of the culture. Now there's a, there's a, there's a, um, there's a, there's a line of like whole foods kind of things called Maggie's farm. I mean, it's, oh, a, no. it's just, well, I mean, there's always somebody doing that, but I mean, It's just, this is something among all the other songs on that brilliant album. This thing just inserted itself into the culture and it's been there ever since.
0: Yeah, you know, I was listening a lot to The Clash this week for reasons that had to do with my own uh, work issues. And uh, I love that song, I'm So Bored With the USA, you know, that that theme of boredom, right? Mm -hmm. Like, But there's a difference between um, regular boredom, boredom and rock and roll boredom because how could you be bored if you're in the clash, right? <laughs> how can you be bored if you're Bob Dylan saying, sing while, uh, you know, you slave while they just, you know, you they, they tell you sing while you slave and you just get bored while they're booing you, throwing stuff at you and, and, and the, and you're the, so, so rock and roll boredom is like, you're turning up your nose at the norm and uh, that clearly, resonates like you're saying you know across generations there's something about that rebel spirit uh particularly when it comes to facing down the boss yep. which is um which is timeless and uh that's one of the parts of what it means to grow up is uh how you can not lose yourself to the boss not lose yourself to authority as you get older, but still not stay a rebellious teenager, right? You know, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough bridge to cross for some people, right? Where you're just pissed off at the fact that people are telling you what to do. I mean, that works when you're 15, 16, 24, eh, kind of on the edge, but when you're, when you're, you know, <laughs> when you're 68,
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: you better not be saying that you're 24, right? You gotta get over that stuff and get on with your life. And uh it metabolizes, it becomes a different kind of rebellion. Maybe you become the boss, maybe you become a better boss because you know what it's like uh to be uh one of those frontline workers.
1: Yeah, um, Bob has performed this again, according to BobDylan.com, mm-hmm. one thousand and fifty-one times. <laughs> so, obviously, a big staple of the set lists through his career. He sure. hasn't done it since two thousand nine. So, yeah. uh, it's been a you know ten whole years. But of course, in the in the in the uh, the realm of the Dylan live canon, ten years is not that much time for anyone else. That would be a career ender. That no, they haven't done it, something it, in ten years. But Bob could pull it out again literally tonight if he wanted to.
0: That's true, but if he had kept up the pace prior to two thousand and nine, it probably—I don't know—would that put it in its top? I don't know how many songs. Like, he's played that song a lot. Yeah, yeah is what it says. One, it's
1: really one of the big ones. And you know, I always wonder what it must be like to have Bob Dylan as a boss, because Bob Dylan's a boss. He's—he's he's Tony's boss, and he's—you know—he's the hes the guy's boss. And it's I not great. I've—I've—I've
0: like. I've spent a little time with some people for whom he has been the boss. And, uh, I mean, it depends on whether you're in the inner circle, the, the the outer inner circle or the outer, outer inner circle or the Mm -hmm. outer circle, but you know, um, you're not going to get a lot of direction from him (laughs) as a boss. Okay. You're kind of going to have to sink or swim, right? There's, uh, there's pretty much, uh, uh, I don't know what they say is, uh, uh, you, you just have to get into the vibe and 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 lean into it, and you never really know <laughs> how the boss is going to respond. And he could be loving it, okay, and not say a word to you for a month, and then just say a sentence to you and disappear for another three months, and you just keep
1: going. <laughs> it could be. So I remember there was I think it was the late Bucky Baxter who said that working with him was. Uh, the big highs and lows. Cause he said, if you, if you did something great, like on stage or whatever, it, you'd felt the most rewarding thing in the world to get a smile from him or like that finger point. And then he said, but it, conversely, if you mess something up, he says, he gives you a look that just says, boy, you suck so bad. And he goes, you just want to crawl under a yeah. desk. It's so awful. So I can imagine that. Yes. Yeah. It's I, not, yeah. not for the faint of heart working for,
0: I don't um, think no. so. I don't think, I don't think I'd want to work on Bob's farm. No. I mean, it might be challenging. I yeah. mean, I'd, it'd be a nice place to visit. I'm not sure I'd want to work
1: there. That? <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. So, well, uh, that's Maggie's fire. I mean, Stephen, wow, this was a marvelous conversation. Oh. I expected no less after reading your book, uh, which I said I thoroughly enjoyed. And as you say, thank it, is, you. it is one of the many books on my Dylan bookshelf I got uh, got sitting here to my left as I'm, I'm recording this. But uh, I mean, geez, thank you so much for doing this. It was just uh, really marvelous to get to talk to you.
0: A real pleasure and love what you do. And uh, big shout out to all those uh, Dylan lovers out there. This is a great community to be in. And uh, I look forward to hearing from a, some from some of you uh, when you read the book and tell me what you think. And uh, and uh, I really appreciate the time with you.
1: Oh, no problem at all. So you mentioned it earlier, but why don't you tell people where they can find you out on the internet?
0: You can find me at mangodlaw.com. Uh, The book is going to be published on May 3rd, wherever, as they say, wherever books are sold. And uh, you can find out about the podcast. We're starting the third season uh, in April, the third of three seasons, probably going to be the last one. That's also at mangodlaw.com.
1: All right. Sounds good. Check it out, everybody. And like I said, if you haven't read the book... Uh, pick up a copy. It's, uh, it's very interesting uh, reading. So of course, for this show, you can find all the back episodes on our website, finewaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on any podcatcher of your choice. And if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, just go to patreon.com slash Podcasts, like these fine folks did. Uh, Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Max Hussle, George Doherty, Waki Meckel, and Paul Ruther. Thank you much, so much guys for your support of Pod Dylan. So that is going to do it. Thanks everybody for listening and we will see you next week. Bye.
0: Well, I ain't going to work on Maggot's farm no more. No, I ain't going to work on Maggie's farm no more.
1: <laughs> when I wake up in the morning, fold my hands in the paper rain, got a head full of our dad's